Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 142 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com and today we welcome the internet's busiest music nerd, Anthony Fantano. If you aren't aware, Anthony's YouTube channel, The Needle Drop, is insanely popular and influential for reviewing music. How he ended up with this title of Internet's Busiest Music Nerd is quite a story. Recently, Anthony and I connected over the phone to discuss how we got into doing this for a living and what he enjoys most out of reviewing music. Do not worry, we got nerdy on some real screamo, too. It was an honor to have Anthony take some time out of his schedule to chat with me. I really, really hope you guys enjoy Thank you to the Patreon supporters. You make this podcast happen. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. Also, any reviews on Apple Podcasts are insanely appreciated. Finally, playing us into the interview is City of Caterpillar with a heart-filled reaction to dissatisfaction. This is episode 142 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with the internet's busiest music nerd, Anthony Fantano. I guess I've always been into music, but I guess the channels through which I've uh, learned about it and understood it have just changed over the years. I mean, when I was a kid, I loved music and I had favorite artists and, and bands and that sort of thing. But the the way I was hearing about those artists was just like through the radio and MTV, you know, back in the 90s. I had a, a, a growing obsession with um you know, just songs that I liked that I heard and I, and I saw on TV and radio, I liked, um, Tupac and Coolio and, um, boys to men and red hot chili peppers and raging as the machine and Nirvana and green day and the offspring and, um, TLC, uh, weird Al, you know, I loved weird Al bad hair day was like my shit back in the day and um and you know eventually it got to a point where um uh, I, I mean i was super young at the time and i would just like kind of 
bug my mom every once in a while to get me a tape of whatever artist or the album, you know, I maybe like toward the end of its existence, this little boom box I had, I might've had like maybe 20 tapes or so. And, um, you know, just played them all to death to the point where they were all warped. And cause I was constantly just like rewinding without stopping the tape and just like wearing the magnetic tape out over and over and over and over. And, um, I had a Bush tape too, uh, when that song machine head was really popular. Um, but yeah, you know, just like, just like popular generic like 90s shit was was mostly what i was into when i was a kid but i was into it you know i was i was very into it and then as i grew older and went to high school i met a bunch of kids and that's kind of when new metal was getting really popular so then that was kind of my thing um eventually met somebody who turned me on to uh more underground rock music and um uh punk and, uh, you know, and then, and then that kind of became my thing for a while. And, and through that, I started going to this local record store and then it was, you know, picking up whatever was at the record store. And then, um, the, the record comeback, like wasn't really a thing yet. So, um, records, even new records, um, were super cheap and, um, uh, and I, and I had a, restaurant job where I got paid under the table. So I was buying all sorts of stuff, you know, just stuff that, um, the person who ran the store would recommend stuff that, um, I would just, I thought the cover was cool. So I would just get it. Um, and on top of that, that's when, um, you know, the whole Napster, Kazaa, LimeWire, SoulSeek, P2P, file sharing services revolution was happening. So I was getting a lot of music through that too. So simultaneously I was buying records at the record store whenever I could and whenever I wanted. And again, keep in mind, it was uh, like a five minute drive from my house, this, this little record store, um, miraculously. Uh, and, and then with, uh, that same friend who turned me on to punk music, we would just like look up crazy shit on, uh, on SoulSeek and, you know, download multiple records from Gigi Allen or, you know, whatever obscure punk bands we could kind of get, uh, uh, information about on, uh, on all music or Wikipedia or, you know, some kind of message board or something. And then maybe find that somebody has their discography on SoulSeek and just download their shit and burn it onto CDs and, and, you know, just like downloading tons and tons and tons of, of MP3s. What was interesting about that time. And I was sort of some, I think I'm a little bit older, maybe the same age, but it's like that. I feel like definitely with college and high school and you had more time and you had more time to in, in take in all this music, but when Napster and Kazaa, it just it felt like this this faucet that you couldn't almost you you, you could handle your twelve CDs or your, or your 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 records, but once it started to be this fast, and there wasn't something to hold, like I couldn't hold the booklet or I couldn't look at the back of something and sort of visualize or, or take it in, it was harder for me to process if i had downloaded the dead kennedy's discography or something from napster it was it, it, it did you feel that did you feel the connection differently from the physical to the digital because you had you experienced both you had you didn't have it and then all of a sudden you did it wasn't like you you were born today and then that that's all you know 
Yes and no. For uh, you know, let, let me let, let me put it a few different ways. I mean, I know that, and and I was not the norm, um, as I later found out when more studies about this sort of thing came out. However, it it could have been just propaganda from the mainstream music industry decrying the whole downloading thing. But um, you know, a lot of what I enjoyed uh, when I downloaded MP3s of it, I would actually just go buy it at the record store, you know, because I, I did feel mostly because I was downloading independent and underground stuff that it, you know, it wasn't like I was just kind of chipping away at the, the multi-million dollar payoff of, you know, some kind of major label artist or something like that. Um, a lot of mainstream music was very much not in my personal rotation around that time, um, outside of classic stuff. But, uh, but anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly felt the desire to, um, go back and, uh, uh, buy a physical copy of something, uh, just to support the artist or I guess just support the fact that they had got signed to the label and the label is taking, you know, kind of a risk on, on bringing them on and putting out that record and so on and so forth. But on top of it, um, you know, a couple of my favorite albums were from when I was a kid, uh, or rather just in high school, um, strokes, uh, is this it? Uh, a system of a down toxicity, um, never owned a physical copy of, is this it until I was, I think in my late twenties or early thirties, because I've, I've always just had a burned CD of it because <laughs> so, a friend of mine just burned it on CD. Um, again, same thing with toxicity, never owned a physical copy outside of just a burned CD of it. Um, uh, although I, I can still say it's like one of the greatest alt metal, new metal albums of all time. Um, should, 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 pro- should probably get on getting a CD of it or something eventually. Uh, I, st- I still own the first album. That record's great. Um, I do, I do own a, a CD, a vintage CD copy of that, but, uh, but never, never owned a copy of toxicity. Just always had it on burnt CD. So, and, and I still always held the album in very, high regard the fact that i only ever owned it burned never really um uh bugged me i guess you know that whole downloading thing that i would have never found out about otherwise You're and right. i couldn't and i couldn't have because the the some of the stuff i was downloading might have been either out of print or just out of my price range too because while i did buy a lot of records i i was not spending money like a collector would on like a 50 dollar copy of you know, some first pressing of whatever album that there's only so many copies of, you know, like if it was good and it was cheap, I was into it. Um, you know, but if it was like, uh, new or old and overpriced, I was not so much on the, uh, the bandwagon. You've had friends kind of showing you throughout the years. And then I know we, we share, we both did college radio and in college radio, is still influential in, in some circles and some things, but, um, how did you, you know, was it something that you knew you wanted to do? Um, was it by accident? Um, for me, it was like my first day on campus. I was bugging the program director to give me a show. Um, but that's a great place to get exposed to so much more music. Yeah. College radio was definitely another exposure point. I was even the, I mean, I was the GM over there for two years at my college radio station and I was the, music director for a year and radio is something that I knew I wanted to get into. Um, as soon as I got into college, I didn't even wait for the first day of college. I was over at the radio station, like in the summer during orientation, 
um, I showed up there and there happened to be some people there. And, and obviously I was just coming in. They, they literally had nothing to, to do for me. Um, but I figured I could show up there and, and get in there early. Um, you know, and, and the fact that I was the music director for my sophomore year and then the GM for two years after that, um, the, the, guy who was, uh, the professor who was the, uh, um, the sort of the overseer of the radio station commented on how, on how rare that was because usually people at the, at the college only typically would get a, a shot at GM for a year. And on top of it, you know, wouldn't really land a serious position at the station until maybe their junior year. But I was there all the time and I was just always putting in extra work and I was, it, you know, just like trying to put in as much effort as possible. I was still a young and dumb kid, you know, who probably not all of my all of my efforts made as much sense as as they they would have if an adult were reasoning them through, uh, you know, a, a, someone with a bit more experience. But, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the purpose of the whole thing to begin with, just to kind of learn the ropes and learn from your mistakes. It's kind of just like a testing ground. For me, a great breeding ground to explore what I knew I loved, but then get exposed to things I'd never heard before. Did you, did you feel the same way when you were there? Yeah, it was the exact same way. There were girls that had indie shows. There were guys that had hip hop shows. There were metal shows. There was a dude who I remember because his show was, always after mine. Uh, and he did an all Dave Matthews show and he would do nothing but like play the hits, but also he would play all the bootlegs. He would play all the live recordings that, you know, random fans had put together or whatever. So it was, it was an all Dave Matthews hour. Um, (laughs) so there were, there were a lot of different bases covered to say the least. From that, did you feel like, okay, what's next? How can I, do this more? I mean, college is only for a certain amount of years. What, what, what were the thoughts as you were kind of feeling that spark in college radio and at school? And while college radio was fun, I was just kind of... What's next? Yeah, I was, I was doing some internships at different radio stations toward the end of my college years, and I was kind of slowly learning that, like, I don't know, basically taking my college radio format and my obsession with music onto the airwaves probably would not really get me all that far. Um, because obviously I wanted to kind of make a living in broadcasting. I didn't just want to like, you know, spin records for no reason. When I got out of college and I started doing internships, I started, um, going into new, going into and interning at news stations, which I was also minoring in political science at the time and communications. So that, um, sort of seemed like a natural fit because I did have interest in those fields. So again, uh, interned at some news stations, ended up interning toward the very end of my college years at um, an NPR station out of Hartford because I just figured I would turn my interest in radio and my drive in that field into just kind of shadowing news reporting, doing radio production, that sort of thing, which I was fine with. I was happy with, I was, you know, I liked doing radio production and audio editing and that sort of thing and announcing. And, um, you know, I followed politics pretty closely. So it it wasn't something that I was, um, 
you know, averse to, to getting into in lieu of doing some kind of, you know, music based thing. So, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, sort of setting the ground for that. And then I just started to, as I was interning at this NPR station to, uh, miss doing my college radio show and miss doing some kind of music based content. And just around that time when I had joined up with this station, um, they had switched from an all classical format, which a lot of NPR stations used to be back in the day. Uh, they had just switched from an all classical format to an all talk format. So it was just nothing but talk and news for the whole day. And because they just made that switch, um, I think maybe only 12 hours of the content they were playing during the day was new and fresh and they would just literally take all the content that they played for the first 12 hours of the day and just repeat it for like the like the the next 12 hours of the day i forget what the cutoff would would be for that but like they were just repeating tons of programming and um one of the directors said well maybe if you put together a show and it's good you can pass to the general manager and he'll let you put it on because we're just literally repeating programming all day. Wow. Which, what great you know, timing. Yeah. You know, great timing and an amazing opportunity too, because, um, it, it was the biggest and still is, you know, the biggest, uh, NPR station in, in Connecticut. So, um, so, you know, I just put together a little half hour music show where I just kind of went into two different albums, played songs, talked about what was sort of significant or stand out about those particular tracks, so on and so forth. And the general manager liked it, but I was still young and he had no clue who the hell I was. So, you know, he, he really had no reason to trust me um, with sort of just get, handing the airwaves over to me. Uh, but he said, well, if, you know, why don't you just, uh, take this and turn it into a podcast and we can put it on the website. How does that sound? And I said, okay, you know, I guess he probably felt like I was, I'd been interning there for months, um, basically just doing all this free work for them and, and sort of just allowing me to have a corner of my own on the NPR site was, I guess maybe the least he thought he could do for me or something in return for all the effort that I was putting in. Um, so, you know, that, that's essentially what he allowed. Um, I stuck with that once a week format for several months. And I think, um, it was in 2008, you know, the next year, cause this started in 07, uh, 2008 next year, I, you know, sort of showed him, Hey, the show's been getting better. It's been improving. I have been really consistent with it. Could I get a spot on the airwaves? And then he just basically said, okay, Saturday, eight o'clock or nine o'clock, if I can recollect, recollect properly. And he's just like, it's yours, you know, here you go, have it. Um, so they just put my show on half hour they put all songs considered on the next half hour to sort of block out the rest of the hour. And that was it. That was my show. I did a weekly show until, uh, on that, on that station, I increased it to an hour eventually. And, um, uh, I did that until I think like 2012. Wow. Quickly. Now, did you, was it started as, did you feel writing for that and writing that background of, public radio where that was it's scripted you were you were putting together those pieces do you think that was a beginning part that helped you later um i did a lot of reviews in college and i felt like that helped me in my 
radio and podcasting world because you could sort of craft you're crafting a story it's uh, was did you feel that or was it something you kind of noticed later that that writing early on helped i think my classes at school and doing the show certainly helped me in my presentation and gave me a certain kind of focus and an understanding of just some of the ropes of journalism. But personally, I I don't feel like it was that helpful in that regard because once I started doing reviews, because I, I didn't personally feel like my radio shows were reviews because I, I would never do a, a like a critical, you know, I, I would never be negative about any album because I, I sort of figured that if I'm playing it, you know, because I'm playing numerous tracks from you the liked album, it. then I liked it, you know, so it was never really, if, if I hated something or I thought it was trash, I just didn't even talk about it. You know, the whole point of the show was just to talk about stuff that I thought was good and worth people's time. Cause eventually when I settled on Hey, let me just like experiment with this YouTube thing because after a few years of doing the podcast and simultaneously running a little music blog too, because the news director of the the station had said, well, maybe you should start putting these podcasts somewhere on the internet, you know, so that they're not just on our site and just kind of seeing our audience, you know, like fish out there and see what happens. Um, you know, and I did that for a while too, but it wasn't really going anywhere. And then I decided to take a risk with this YouTube thing and just decided, well, I haven't really seen anybody on YouTube consistently do music reviews of new albums. So let me see if I can try my hand at that. And when I started doing that, honestly, with the whole review thing, I felt like I was just starting from square one, you know, because I'm like, what the hell is, you know, like (laughs) a review? I don't know, Um, because I didn't even really read that many reviews up until that point. You know, I mean, I, you know, some, some of my earlier videos, the way that I talked or analyzed the album probably was super similar to how I would talk about the album, you know, in, in the context of one of my radio shows, you know what I mean? But eventually there would be, there would come a time when, and I don't know exactly when this started because I know my old reviews, like my first year of reviews, like, or, or at least like some of the earliest reviews I can think of that are not on the channel anymore because they had copyrighted, you know, music in them because I would play song clips and stuff. Um, you know, they, they didn't have scores, so I don't know exactly when I started scoring things and I don't know when exactly I started reviewing things negatively, you know, um, but I remember, even though I don't know exactly the time frame on that, I do remember pretty vividly struggling with like, oh man, I have to say something bad about this, you know, or I have to, not only do I have to say something bad about this, but I also have to figure out like, like, what is this general sense of like, okay, this is superior to this and this is superior to this and this thing is inferior to this other thing. And, uh, you know, just in terms of like preference Mm -hmm. and how do I kind of block that out into a, 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 a rating scale, which in retrospect, like the light to decent to strong scale doesn't even make any fucking sense, (laughs) you know, because something is light. Okay, then then where do you then then wouldn't it go to like I don't know heavy from there? But there's yeah. no heavy in the scale. It goes to decent. So then what? Then so then from decent you go to great. No, you don't. You go from decent to strong, and it's like, well, do you go down from strong to weak? No, you go from you go down to decent and light. It doesn't make any fucking sense. So and and it's so funny because it's like, 
almost nobody's ever questioned it, you know? Really? Yeah, you know, I've I've never had anybody write me a lengthy email saying, Anthony, the light, decent, strong thing, it doesn't make any sense. You know, like I've pointed out a few times before that it doesn't make any sense. You know, in retrospect, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking when I decided to refer to the numbers. And and even though people say, oh, well, Anthony's not like pitchfork. He doesn't use decimal points. I mean, in a way, the light, decent, strong is kind of my own decimal point. That is. Because like I, I would equate a, a strong six to a 6.9 and a light eight to like an 8.1 or something, <laughs> you know, or a strong four to a 4.8. Now that you're you know, saying that, I totally get that. Yeah, you know, so and and the thing is, like, I don't know if it's because to most people it either just makes sense or they're not really thinking about it all that deeply or um, or, or they just, you know, I, I don't know which one it is. Maybe it's a mixture of column A and column B. But again, I've pointed out numerous times before that, that it doesn't make any fucking sense. And, and it's very much a, uh, you know, the, the whole concept of that scoring profile is is very much the result of the fact that i i went into this thing as a pure amateur and and had no idea you know like what like what and like a proper scoring i i guess a uh, strategy is you know i i was vaguely um aware of like uh some pitchfork reviews here and there. If I had friends who like ragged on them and stuff or disagreed with them or whatever. But again, I was not like a super big consumer of reviews. I was somebody who mostly, if I, you know, was hearing about a negative opinion on an album or something, I would most likely be talking about how bad that album is with my friends or other people at the radio station or, you know, or I'd have to tell, you know, some person who was (laughs) on the phone working PR for whatever record. And I had to explain to them that, you know, this album isn't really getting that many plays on, on CMJ this week because people don't like it. (laughs) And I think it's RIP. So yeah, RIP (laughs) rest in peace. What's that moment that you, that you said, I'm going to make this a real thing. I mean, it was, it was always the plan to turn it into a job. That was always the plan. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's the reason I'd gotten to broadcasting to begin with. I guess the thing is, like, I, I never anticipated that I would end up on YouTube, much less just the internet in general. I thought when I was starting my music show, you know, on on this NPR station, that that was going to be my career. But it didn't end up panning out that way for a few different reasons. I mean, one, the the demographic of people who would really be interested in in the show that I was making, not really the demographic of people who watch or listen to NPR, at least not at that time anyway. This was before, like... NPR was even covering hip hop regularly or, um, you know, even covering a lot of indie music, you know, at, at that time, like th- there was very little NPR coverage. NPR music was, a, was a thing. It was a body, but a lot of their coverage around that time in the late two thousands, they were just beginning to dip their toes into the indie thing, even though it had already been happening for years, you know, and anytime you went on their website and I know because for a while, Um, I wrote for their all songs considered column. Um, anytime you'd say anything nice about or recommend a hip hop song, there'd be tons of comments like, Ugh, hip hop. That's not even music. Get out of here. They say so many swears, you know, and and that sort of thing. I mean, if you guys, you know, look up Anthony Fantano, NPR music, all songs considered, you could probably see a lot of the pieces that I've written (laughs) over the years. Um, 
and, uh, you know, I figured this radio show, I will eventually be able to grow an audience, but they wouldn't put it at a time during the day where they could even allow me to do such a thing. Because again, a lot of the people who were listening, they, they're older, they want to hear the news, they want to listen to, um, you know, this one local program somebody does. It's, it's very popular. She fundraises very well every year, but you know, she pretty much just talks about like food recipes and, and that sort of thing. Like that, that's the demographic, you know? Of, of people listening to uh, the the show. It's not hip indie kids who during my time slot uh, would most likely not be listening to the radio at all, but be out at a show, you know, which, which I kind of, you know, learned because as I was doing my thing, you know, I'd be talking to people who I know or talking to people in the area. And I'm like, Hey, did you hear the show? And they're like, no, I was literally out like living the life of a young person and not listening to the radio at 8 PM on a, on a Friday or a Saturday or whatever. So, you know, it, it became apparent that, I mean, while I was getting some little writing gigs here and there, that I wasn't exactly nailing it on the platform thing, because even though I did have like this little bit of credibility from being affiliated with an NPR station and NPR in general by way of that, also, I uh, wasn't really getting in touch with the demographic of people who was me. You know, just a 20 something who really loved music. And I'm just like, where, where the hell do these people even exist? Um, and that's when I decided to sort of take my chance on YouTube because I mean, everybody at the college station that I worked at, we were always watching YouTube, you know, I'm, I was always watching YouTube. So I figured why not just like try it myself because I'm on YouTube. I figure other people who are like me are probably on YouTube too. So let me just try to make YouTube videos and see if I can flip it in that way. Now on YouTube, I couldn't do my radio show. So the only format that made sense to me at the time was just reviews, even though I didn't really do that many reviews outside of, again, like maybe a few like opinions here and there and like a, a, a local weekly or something, which like, you know, you're talking about like a paragraph or two worth of text at the most. Whereas, you know, I had to talk for like however many minutes, you know, there were like literally no limitations at the time. Although I think maybe around that time, YouTube might have prevented you from putting out videos at a certain length until you maybe got like approved or partnered or whatever. You know, throughout all this, the effort has always been to try to figure out a way to, to make money off of it and turn it into a career, you know. So there was never like, you know, to me, the jump was when I made the podcast, you know, that's when the jump was happening. Now, simultaneously, like my time with that was split between, you know, I was also working at a restaurant, as I mentioned earlier, and still living at home at the time and, uh, saving up money to pay off my college loans and so on and so forth. And, um, hanging out with my friends and going to shows every once in a while. But honestly, a lot of my time was sunk into, just doing the needle drop. I mean, thankfully, uh, my restaurant job just kind of required me to work uh, mid afternoons to like, you know, late evenings. So pretty much my whole morning and early afternoons were devoted entirely to, you know, doing doing uh, the needle drop, doing the radio show, you know, writing, writing and recording and editing reviews. So I had a, a you know, the first half of the day. I would basically just do all my needle drop stuff and then I would go into work and I'd work late at the restaurant and just, you know, cooking and making food and then I'd come home and then I just sort of like continue that, that whole pattern. And, um, you know, eventually it got to a point where I was, 
uh, finagling ways to sort of nickel and dime some money off of it here and there. And, uh, uh, not just off of YouTube revenue, but trying to sell like some merch every once in a while as well. I, I would say if there was any kind of like jump moment, it was when I think in 2011, you know, just two years after I started the YouTube channel where I was able to make enough money where I could do the needle drop and, uh, still work at the restaurant. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's basically enough money to move out. So, and, and of course I was moving out with my girlfriend at the time who is, is now my wife. So, um, so yeah, thankfully that panned out as well. Um, (laughs) because, uh, you know, not, not that it would have, uh, ruined my trajectory or anything, but, um, uh, you know, so many people who, who hop into relationships in their early, uh, 20s rarely find themselves still in those relationships in their you know, early thirties. So congrats. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the needle drop worked out, the relationship thing worked out <laughs> and, um, you know, so we, we just moved out and, uh, it, you know, it was, it was hard because I had to devote even more time to it just to kind of make sure that like, Hey, if like something went wrong or something crazy happened, like, would we be able to make rent or whatever, you know? So my typical work days would had, had turned into, you know, still the needle drop more during the afternoon and midday driving to go work to, you know, at the restaurant and then coming home and then maybe either shooting and editing more until like 3 a.m. or something. Wow. You know, which was a little arduous because at that time, even though the YouTube channel was working and was successful, I was doing the YouTube channel. I was doing all the stuff for the website and I was still doing the podcast too, because I, I was still kind of holding out hope that, that, Hey, maybe if like the YouTube channel grows and gets hot, then the podcast will get popular. And then I can kind of use the relevance of that to kind of grow the other thing. And, you know, like I, I had these three irons in the fire. I didn't really want to let go of either of them. And I just didn't really know which one was really going to kind of pan out. And then it eventually got to a point, I think just, a you know, several years later where I just had to give up the podcast. I mean, it's still, it still exists today, but now it's just really kind of a roundup of all of like my best kind of reviews and content of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, you know, seem to take to it and, you know, in that sort of convenient roundup type format. Um, but I, I couldn't just continue it as it kind of currently was, you know, especially since, uh, in a lot of respects, it was, it was kind of a repeat of what I was doing throughout the week anyway, as a lot of my opinions, that I had on a particular album at that point in the week would also end up in my radio show anyway, you know? So it was kind of like I was just really redoing the whole thing just for an audio format. Um, on top of that, you know, again, most of the website stuff was falling on me. I wasn't doing a whole lot of, um, uh, uh, reaching out in terms of getting other writers to do anything for the site. And even though it was arduous, the whole MP3 blog Osphere thing that was popular in the late, uh, 2000s and in, in the very early portion of this decade, um, that was still pretty manageable. Whereas right now, I feel like streaming services have put us in a situation where, and, and Bandcamp and SoundCloud, where there's like there's literally more new music than ever to cover or write about or talk about or reference or even listen to. Whereas like back then, maybe like one or two interesting MP3s would drop or songs would drop a day, you know. <laughs> Which like nowadays that's like, you know, there's tons of songs dropping every day. 
that I'm I'm interested in. Definitely felt that when like pure pure volume started going. It's like, oh wow. Now there's like it did feel like there was more, but you're right, it did feel more manageable uh then. Did you did, what what is the I mean being able to uh you know speak on all of these different genres and do all these reviews get and and coming across and explaining these what's the what's the process for you you know as a bare minimum like listening to a record or being able to uh spend enough time with it um that's the thing i find where it's like i just i feel like i don't have enough time and i need to be strategic and smart about it um i'm sure those things have changed over the years um for you with being more full time and you not having to work at the restaurant um but are there are there things that you've learned over those years of just trying to be able to get to the root of something that's how i feel like when i get to a record when i feel like i've gotten to the root of it and i i can feel it yeah i think um i think over the years my process with that has changed and certainly a, a lot of that time that i would spend sort of being up way later than I probably should have been, um, you know, was certainly spent learning the ropes and figuring out how to get a good review together and also cover more genres and artists that I, that I, excuse me, wasn't before. Because when I started out, um, I really only, I really only covered indie rock and, um, and not that that was all that I was listening to, but that seemed like kind of the new hot hip relevant thing seemed like there were a lot of other, uh, you know, websites out there covering it. Um, I could, I could visibly see that there was like this online demand for content around that stuff. And around the time that I started my YouTube channel, there was, um, two other YouTubers who had pretty much gotten the same idea at the same time as me. Um, one who goes by the name of jumble junkie doesn't really do review content in the way that he used to anymore. Another guy who goes by the name who went by the name of you're wrong. I'm right. Also doesn't make YouTube, uh, you know, review content anymore. Um, you know, one of which reviewed pretty much metal music, one of which reviewed a lot of, uh, experimental stuff, hip hop stuff. And, um, you know, I figured those guys, I guess, you know, we watched each other's content. We were aware of each other. We had like a little community going for a while. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, the way I saw it, um, uh, they, they kind of had those bases covered, you know, no reason for me to cover that stuff. I'll just cover, uh, you know, the, the popular sort of indie rock shit of the, of the day of the minute of the, whatever, you know, cover the new Jay retard record, the new animal collective record, you know, the new sun record, you know, that sort of, that sort of shit. Um, you know, the new fleet foxes album, that sort of thing. So I was just kind of sticking with that, keeping up with that. And then it would get to a point where a super popular album in a particular genre that was just so big, it was transcending, you know, the particular cultural niche it was in, um, would come out and my audience would be curious about my thoughts on it, even though, you know, I didn't really have a whole lot of experience, um, it obviously in reviewing in general, but, you know, even, uh, reviewing some of those, um, genres, you know, because I mean, as, as, uh, uh, I've read very little rock criticism ever. And, um, I probably read even less hip hop criticism, you know? So, uh, um, I guess, uh, uh, you know, so, so it put me in a position where I had to definitely learn the ropes 
go through some awkward situations where, you know, the, the people who were watching me like severely disagreed with me or agreed with me, but didn't really like my take on it or, you know, thought it was pretty apparent that like I hadn't covered a whole lot of artists in, in that style before. I mean, previously there wasn't really a genre that I was, I guess, uh, averse to, you know, um, in college and in high school, I listened to hip hop, I listened to electronic music and metal music and, pop music and rock music and singer songwriter and folk stuff. But, you know, I, I very much had a very casual buffet like approach to everything. You know, I wasn't really like that deeply ingrained into uh, any one thing outside of like probably the longest single music genre obsession that I've had in my life is, is probably punk music, which was a bit of an opening, you know, an entryway drug because it's, it certainly, you know, opened my head to the idea that, Hey, you know, here's this like very obscure underground version of this genre that everybody, you know, is really familiar with. That's really cool. Um, it must be the same for every genre. You know, there must be really cool underground metal. There must be really cool underground electronic music. There must be really cool underground hip hop. And, you know, uh, well, doy, in fact, there was. I'm having this realization as a high schooler, you know what I mean? So, you know, I, I had to uh, put myself in a position where I had to, uh, you know, basically familiarize myself with genres and music styles that I enjoyed, but I didn't necessarily have like the the bearings to talk about in like in a studious way or in a way where I can like actually pass information off to you know, my viewers or actually critique it in such a way where, you know, I can, I can sort of speak to not only whether or not it's quality, but you know, whether or not it's, it's even remotely new or original either, you know, because when you're relatively new to a genre or a movement, I mean, everything can sound fresh and amazing to you if you have no fucking clue where any of it comes from. Um, you know, which is a, a really cool, position to be in. If you're a new young music listener, everything's fucking amazing because everything sounds new and different. But as a reviewer, you can't, you can't really afford to be in that position, you know, because people are sort of expecting you to kind of know the fundamentals and the basis for which what you're talking about sort of comes from. How have you taken criticism and similarly, how have you taken praise early on in the existence of the channel? It was good and bad. I mean, there were, there were elements of great criticism that was thrown my way where people would sort of observe certain things about my reviews or my critiques of certain albums or certain genres that actually taught me how to better approach talking about those styles of music or even just make reviews in general, because, you know, I was trying to make content that people wanted to watch. And if my audience was telling me my very small localized audience at the time, there were very little to no memes at all in the comments section. You could actually go into the comments and, um, glean some interesting advice or information from other music fans who were just as obsessed with music as I was. Um, uh, you know, there was good information in there, uh, from people who, you know, who just uh, would tell me whether or not something with my videos was working for them or not, or, uh, you know, giving me extra input on stuff I could have also brought up or something. You know, it was it was very small and very localized and very communal at that time. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm really glad that the needle drop didn't like blow up virally super early on because I, I really needed that time to learn and incubate and fuck up and, you know, just like. I don't know, just, uh, just try to, um, I guess get, get a grip of what exactly 
I do. I know my first year of reviews are down, but a great deal of my 2010 reviews are still up. And, you know, I, I encourage you and anybody who, um, you know, is listening to uh, go check out some of those reviews because some of them really suck ass. You know, they really <laughs> fucking suck. Um, I always tell people to go 10 years ago and on my website and see how angry I was when they say like, Oh, you're, Oh, you thought I was angry. Look at me in 2008 and 2007, um, on a, on a blog spot site. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people would say that my reviews today probably still suck, but, um, <laughs> but back then, uh, my reviews oh, really sucked. fucking sucked. Yeah. They really fucking sucked. I will bring up the word emo for a second. The response now of sort of the, the genre being revered when 20 years ago, that record was either slammed, given a crappy review or not even mentioned. And do you think it's interesting for the genre and thinking sort of bigger that it's now respected in the, in the long run, or do you feel like it'll continue to be sort of a punchline for people? No, I mean, you know, the way I see it, it just kind of happens that way. Sometimes I get the internet can kind of create a situation where it, it almost like revises history a little bit because people can now go back on a message board or on a website like rate your music, for example, find some obscure fucking album from the eighties that people either hated or totally ignored. And then all of a sudden that record shoots up to the top 10 of whatever particular genre that album falls in. And if you go on to whatever list people have sort of scored or revered that album, and you don't know how long that album has been in that list, you know, that people hated that album back in the day. You don't know any of that shit. You know, you're just kind of looking at the list. You're like, okay, these are the 10 best, you know, whatever. I remember back in the day when emo was like at its relevancy peak and yeah, there wasn't really a whole lot of talk about American football. There was a lot of talk about brand new, about, uh, sunny day real estate about mineral. There was even talk of bands that people don't even really strictly, I guess, you know, label as emo anymore. Like, you know, when, when, when people, uh, talked about, you know, emo music, you know, Connor Oberst was synonymous with emo music, Definitely. you know, but in, in retrospect, people don't categorize him as emo as much as they used to, you know? Yeah. Um, or emo was, was also kind of seen as like a, um, a really, really a deriding word too. You know, I mean, it, it was certainly like a legitimate genre, but um, simultaneously back then it was the newest, hottest thing. But it was also for a lot of people like, mm, you know, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that term. Um, you know, also there was I would say there was a little talk of cap and jazz and orchid and, you know, screamo was obviously a thing back then as well. Page ninety nine. Do you have a favorite Screamo band? Probably either Page or Envy. You know, as far as like old school stuff, I think a lot of the newer stuff is uh, – some of the newer stuff is great. You know, the Loma Prieta shit and the uh, Touche Amore shit, you know, I think is fantastic. Um, but as far as like, you know, older stuff, um, Page and uh, uh, Envy were great. I, I guess the the point that I'm getting to is, is yeah, the internet can kind of revise um, the reception of an album and kind of reinvent – uh, the way that people perceive an older album that may have been maligned or forgotten, but it's, it's not like pre-internet that was a totally new and different thing. I mean, like people didn't even know or fucking care about the violent femmes until the nineties. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, and it's, it's, it's so weird to think of it like that because the thing is like blister in the sun, that song came out in the eighties, but people look at that song as a nineties song. Mm hmm. You know, not only because I think that song aesthetically is is very much a 90s song, you know, but the thing is, like, in, in the 80s, nobody gave a fuck about that song. 
You know, nobody gave a fuck about that band in the 80s. But, you know, through just the music industry and through whatever fucking channels it ended up happening, um, people just really loved the Violent Femmes in the 90s. And that's where they sort of saw the bulk of their popularity, even though they were uh, a band for many years before that. And it's and it's not even like, oh, well, they were a band for a while and they just got popular later. No, literally the music they started with got popular later by the time they got popular. They were writing totally different shit. You know, that wasn't even like Gordon's prime writing style. Yeah. Anymore. Like by the time they ended up getting popular off of like blister in the sun and shit. So again, not, not the first time that that sort of thing has, has happened. I mean, even, you know, uh, velvet underground and joy division are prime examples of that too. You know, velvet underground, were not a fucking platinum selling band when they were around. You know, Joy Division was not this massively popular band when they were um, still active. People wouldn't even know about Joy Division if not for New Order. Yeah. You know? And what's funny is, like, now people remember Joy Division more than they remember New Order. But the thing is, like, New Order changed the face of synth pop and, um, you know, created an interest in the band's whole journey in general. You know? And and if it wasn't for that, like, I don't even know if people would even really give a fuck about Joy Division. When the emo revival sort of came about in 09 10 11 were you sort of paying attention then you know i'm having a hard time even seeing it as a revival because the thing is like emo is still a relatively popular thing when i when i left college so we're talking about like what was there a gap of two years where emo was not as popular it was like, i would say i'm saying the revival was yet yeah, that was the term i'd never thought it went away but i think they were ta- they were it was bands not sounding like taking back Sunday or brand new. It was bands sounding like sunny day or bands sounding like mineral. It, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I guess, I guess an underground revival. Yes. Underground. Yeah. Like you're, you're the, it was, I, all I wouldn't around. really, I wouldn't really call it a revival as much as, as much as this, like nobody gave a fuck about the mainstream bands anymore because just like any other mainstream, anything, it just came and went with the tide. So, you know, nobody gives a shit about simple plan anymore. It's over. It's done. You know, it's the, that that era is gone. So that gave emo, I think, an opportunity to get back to what it was like in the first place, you know, and, and now as a result of that, you hear more of these very raw, noisy, rowdy, emotionally, you know, unhinged bands that are just kind of like playing this messy cap and jazz type shit. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I think, I think in a way it's a return to form, but I think, um, it's, it's such a return to form to the point where it's just like, wow, man, like where, what's, where's this going? Where's the next chapter of it? You know? And, and I think that, um, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate that, um, bands like brave little abacus, you know, ended as, as prematurely as they did, because I, I think as far as like newer, newer emo shit goes like instrumentally, that's pretty cutting edge, you know? Um, with a lot of what they were doing with like the synths and shit and just the sort of the experimental recording style, you know, it, like it definitely had an emo sound and an emo style and vibe to it. Um, but it felt like, you know, the, the next page, it felt like the future, you know, and, and these days when I am hearing something that, that obviously has an emo root to it and it's refreshing, it's, it's usually an emo band, uh, not, not an emo band, but a screamo band. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's just the way things are progressing. A lot of the newer acts that I hear, it's, it's, uh, I, I guess you could call it revivalism in a sense because it very much seems stuck in the past, but, um, 
uh, it, it just doesn't really excite me, you know, and maybe that has to do with the fact that I kind of lived through the most popular part of it. I mean, obviously growing up, I didn't grow up as an emo kid. You know, I, I didn't grow up listening to fucking mineral and, and I didn't grow up listening to sunny days diary or anything. I came into those records later, you know, after emo was like, what's this whole emo thing that everybody's talking about every 10 fucking minutes. Yeah. And you know, not only just as a music, um, movement, but also is just like at the time emo was just casually used as an insult too. you know, Still like, is. Oh, what are you doing? Be, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> for sure. But, but back then I felt like, um, with emo, there was a very strong, uh, look and dress to it too at the time. Um, whereas these days when, when I see a lot of emo guys, you know, and, and look, we're, we're talking back then we're talking MySpace era. Okay. Oh, totally. So it's like, you know, friends like too, maybe that's very, very strong defined look to the whole emo movement and sound and, and fashion, you know, sense and everything. Did you have a like, makeout I, club account? Oh my God. No, I did not. <laughs> that also but, had um, a few of those. Uh, you know, whereas these days when I see a lot of these emo bands, they just look like regular kids. Like they, they look like, they look like minor threat. You know, they just look, they're just like regular dudes. You know, just just in whatever just in whatever band that they just started. It is those kids in a basement. Just you're right, trying to they're being noisy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, honestly, I, I don't think there's um I, I don't think there's anything bad or wrong about that. Like I think I think that's great. I think that's probably an essential part of a lot of people's personal and social development. Definitely. Um, you know, I have. Uh, a portion of time in my life where, I mean, I wouldn't say I was in an emo band or anything, but you know, there was a portion of time in my life where, you know, I was strumming my little acoustic guitar, like probably way more fucking often than I should have. And I was just like an emotional little bitch. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I look back on that time and I cringe, you know, but the thing is like, I, I felt like I, I kind of needed that, you know, at that point in time, you know, because it, in that moment, it made sense for me making music and the stuff that you were uh, doing with and uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but the the uh, Cal Culchesta. Yeah, Cal Cal Chichesta, my alt my alter, uh, my 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 roommate. What was the what's the uh, what's the crux and what does uh, that thing fill for you? Uh, it's mostly just me dicking around because you know I, I just looking for a silly outlet because sometimes I just like to do something ridiculous. As I've mentioned before, not in this podcast, but in other places. Yeah, I, I used to run a YouTube channel where I just like did ironic meme reviews and weird shit post videos that were um, uh, very satirical, very nihilistic, and very just like throwing shit at the wall and sometimes provocative, sometimes trying to piss people off, sometimes being really absurdist, sometimes just... Um, uh, just trying to um, get a rise out of people. And it, it was a fun time. You know, it was also like an experiment in um, uh, just trying to do the exact opposite of what I do on my main channel in terms of like, hey, this is serious. It's uh, consistent. It's trustworthy. It makes sense. It's, you know, you you could tell an older person who looks down on, you know, Oh, Hey mom, dad, I'm going to become a YouTuber. Okay. 
you know, it's like, it, I'm sure there are a lot of parents that, you know, hear their kids say something like that, or like, I'm going to become a, uh, an Instagrammer. There's a lot of kids getting big on Instagram right now. <laughs> so you had no music thing when you were making that band, you weren't like channeling a record. It was just, you wanted to make noise. Well, I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I played guitar a lot by myself. Um, and I did like some weird home recording shit just to like kind of get a feel for it because I was talking a lot about production in my, uh, in my reviews. It was something I was definitely interested in kind of focused on, but, um, simultaneously I was in a duo for a while as well, where by that point I was so far past my guitar strumming days, um, uh, or, or even, uh, or even beyond even a primary interest in that. I mean, even before the guitar, I've, I've played bass guitar, just bass. And, um, I was in a duo with a drummer and it was sort of like an instrumental drone metal duo because, uh, both of us were, we just, we just both happened to really be into bands like earth and, um, and sun and, and just very slow experimental droney heavy music. And, um, and that's, that's primarily what, what we were, um, making at the time. But, uh, you know, we just struggled to, um, one get, um, get gigs in, in our music scene because there wasn't really like, there's not really a strong metal scene in Connecticut. Like there are maybe a few places here and there where locally a metal band could, could play if they, if they can actually bring a crowd in. But like, if you're some local band and you're a fucking metal band, um, it's, it's, it's a tough sell, you know, especially around that time. I mean, when, when new metal was more popular, it probably made more sense. Um, but around that time in the late sort of two thousands, like trying to pitch yourselves as like a weird experimental metal band, like it did not really make all that much sense. Um, there was, a and, and it was funny because the person who I was gigging with, he was a very good drummer. Um, and actually had performed on multiple records from local artists. And he knew a lot of people in the local scene and he actually got us a lot of gigs and we would play at these places. And, um, uh, uh, we bought or, uh, we bought together a very big amplifier. Um, and I bought like, you know, two huge, uh, amp cabinets, um, you know, with four large, like, uh, I think eight or 10 inch speakers in each of them. And, uh, we'd crank that thing to fucking 10 and I had like distortion pedals and loop pedals and reverbs and everything. And, um, every place we played, we would play loot too loud and just blow the place the fuck out. And we would, we would never be, we would never be invited back to anything ever again. That's fucking um, punk rock, Anthony. Well, we did that. And then I just knew I couldn't really keep up because I just sort of saw the path I was trying to build in broadcasting is just kind of making more sense. And, um, you know, I, I, I knew that whatever music I ended up wanting to sort of be passionate about making, I wasn't really interested in trying to make music that appealed to a wide group of people anyway, you know, and, and at that point in my life, I was more sort of geared toward just figuring out my career path than I was, um, you know, trying to figure out, uh, you know, try to, try to like feed my artistic ego or whatever. Is there, are there things that, uh, that you want to do that you haven't done yet with the, with the needle drop? You know, I, I would like to meet more people, do more interviews and that sort of thing, you know, try to get to a point where, um, 
shooting and uh, working out of a designated workspace as opposed to just my my, my place of living. And, I, and I've sort of been um, scoping out some areas like that. I just like to continue to build build the website, build, I mean, build the YouTube channels, build the brand, um, continue to just grow everything. Because it seems like the more that I do it, the more opportunities turn up. Another thing that I'm focusing on now is just, um, you know, doing more speaking engagements, speaking gigs. Um, I have a few more college dates coming up. You know, that's, that's kind of my plan right now. What's been the most rewarding experience from, from doing this? Just when I give a, a very positive review of something and um, I guess uh, people take to it, you know, and it ends up growing the profile of the artist I reviewed. People end up loving that, that band or artist and it ends up meaning a lot to them. You know, that, that to me is what's really exciting and gratifying about the whole thing, that I've had the opportunity to uh, be an entry point for for music fans, you know, to introduce them into to, to things that they wouldn't have heard otherwise. I was going to ask you before I let you go, how did you find about find out about Washed Up Emo? Um, and if I you forget. don't know, that's okay. I forget. I think I was just asking people for like maybe podcast recommendations or something, and yours came up. Cool. Because there was a while when I was, I realized that I, I, I literally listened to no music podcasts, and I think... Um, I think I think yours came up recommended, and I just followed your 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 Twitter account, and I checked it out. I was like, okay, it seems like you got something cool going on. Fucking roll. That was it. That was all my questions. Well, that was fun. Did you have fun? Yeah, I had a good time. Thank you, man. Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo. And Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. Also, reprinted volume one so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.